crass of gold. Do 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 do. Populism. Do 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 do. I don't know about that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn, Jane Coaston. The government is still shut down. That may or may not be an emergency at the border. Uh, but we wanted to take a break, talk about something else, something a little less silly, frankly. You know, and, and Jane had a great uh, article on this uh, yesterday, so I'm going to let you explain what it is we are talking about because— You really know. It's true. So last Wednesday, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, uh, who has a very popular show on Fox News, uh, gave a monologue. It was about 15 minutes, and it was essentially an indictment of American capitalism, in which he said that America's ruling class are mercenaries and substitute teachers who don't actually care. And he railed against payday loans and talked about how, you know, libertarian economic theory have like really done bad things to not the American economy, but to the American populace. And this started a firestorm on the right of people responding to it or agreeing to it. Uh, Rod Dreher at the American Conservative, which is more of a paleo-conservative publication, said that Tucker Carlson should run for president, where National Review has had, I think, like eight pieces of just going back and forth on this. And yeah, it's, it's really be- been like a throwback to the kind of earlier bloggy ages. Like, yeah. man, remember that one week in 2008 when everybody on the internet was talking about whether we should get rid of the penny? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's been kind of like that. There's this really robust argument happening that has absolutely nothing to do with the day-to-day of what's going on in the federal government. Oh, no, 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 but it does. I mean, this is what I think is fascinating about it, because in effect, we are now having among conservatives a robust argument about the ideas that Donald Trump put on the table. Right. Because Trump was such a clown that initially nobody took Trump's side. On the right. right, right. There were there were no highbrow intellectuals being like Donald Trump is amazing and has thoughtful ideas that will solve America. And then he became the nominee, so there was a kind of partisan, like anti anti Trump spirit in which like everybody was for him. Right. But like Tucker, by being a like literate person who can write a good article or monologue, put on the table in a way that people are going to argue about this idea of like, should the conservative movement in some sense ditch free market ideology? Yeah, I want to bracket. Like, I think that the extent to which this is about Donald Trump versus an ongoing ideological battle where like it is advantageous for one side to claim Donald Trump is like a contested question. But yeah, and it was it was interesting because in the monologue and in you know, I had a conversation with Tucker Carlson. We spent like 35 minutes on the phone. Um, he talked about, you know, at some point Donald Trump will be gone. And then what will we do? And what we're, will our children's future look like? And it's interesting. You know, I'll quote a couple of lines from this monologue. Let's see. Any economic system that weakens and destroys families is not worth having. A system like that is the enemy of a healthy society. And he concluded this monologue with a demand for a fair country, a decent country, a cohesive country, a country whose leaders don't accelerate the forces of change purely for their own profit and amusement. And this goes to conversations. There's been kind of this um, 
I think, interestingly, uh, Chris Hayes, the MSNBC host, wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Twilight of the Elites. And Tucker Carlson's book, Ship of Fools, is also this kind of anti-elitist criticism. And this deep concern about technological advancement. Um, Carlson went on Ben Shapiro's podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and basically was saying that, you know, if he were in charge of everything, he would ban self-driving trucks and cars in order to save the trucking industry. And that he would just come up with some excuse for that. And when we had a conversation about it, didn't make it into the piece, he talked about, like, of course I would. Like, technology is moving too fast and it's not good for people. And it was interesting because, um, you know, some of the criticism of Carlson was that, you know, he sounded a lot like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And then when I talked to him, he was like, yeah, I know my monologue was reminiscent of Elizabeth Warren because her 2003 book, The Two Income Trap, Why Middle Class Parents Are Going Broke, he told me there were parts of it that are really important and true and nobody wanted to have that conversation. And I think it was also interesting because this is a this is an intra-right conversation that's taking place now because I think it's something that the left obviously has been debating these subjects for decades, but the right coming to these conclusions and Trump really not being as much a part of this conversation as you'd expect. And Carlson told me that essentially he was, you know, Trump is a symptom of this kind of drive for populism. And I think an interesting moment in terms of the debate between kind of market capitalism, free markets, and this kind of populist attitude is actually the responses that some pieces have gotten, especially when you're talking about the white working class. And we can get in, we'll get into the race stuff later, because I think that's interesting. That's something I also mentioned. But um, in 2016, uh, National Review writer Kevin Williamson, who then it all turned into a giant palava because of the Atlantic and a bunch of other stuff, he wrote a piece basically saying, like, if you are in a podunk town, why don't you just leave your failing podunk town? And people on the right were furious because he basically took the same kind of bootstrapping argument that conservatives have used to basically everybody else for decades and made it about white working class people. And, you know, the response to that, I think that, you know, and I asked Carlson about this, like that actually kind of was a moment where I was like, oh, I think Trump talking like this, not necessarily believing in it, because I think a lot of people who um, Michael Brendan Doherty and a lot of people kind of espouse more populist views have found Trump very disappointing because everything he talked about in 2015, 2016 did not actually wind up happening at all, ever. And his administration was definitely has not been a kind of populist success, success story. But I think that this conversation, it's been going on, you know, it was going on before Trump, but I think that Trump has accelerated it. And it was interesting also because Carlson was like, I'm not a populist, I'm just a talk show host. But, you know, populism is the smoke and there's a fire going on here. And basically saying that, like, if we don't engage with these ideas, if we don't do something of kind of a more populist bet, that's what's going to lead to socialism, is that people are going to start thinking, like, you know, the government should be doing these things. And it was just such an interesting argument to see people having with other conservatives about the government should be doing more to make it easier to get married or for people to succeed. You know, there there should be changes to the tax code. And it was just... It was an interesting conversation that's been ongoing, but I think Carlson's monologue really heightened it. I, I I think that, yeah, there's a ton of directions that we could be going, and hopefully we'll go in at least a few of them. But 
I personally think that we cannot have this conversation without talking about who Tucker Carlson is first. Um, Because it is not like there is a lot that like as someone who cares about intellectual currents in American thought and who has been interested in the ways that social conservatism like expresses itself in a, you know, a movement that is generally accepted the free market as gospel. Like I am intellectually interested in all of this. The conversation that's happening on National Review's website right now doesn't really grapple with the fact that Tucker Carlson is not primarily someone who is speaking truth to power in the American right. Tucker Carlson is and has continued to be after this monologue. Like this wasn't like a turning point in his public persona. Like Tucker Carlson is on Fox News every night, mostly talking to the same white working class who he's you know, like taking up the cause of in this monologue, talking to them about how their real problem is that immigrants are going to kill them. But also the idea that immigrants are being wielded like a club, that they are not acting of their own volition, that the globalist elite, and in this particular monologue, it's Mitt Romney, in a sense, talking about Bain Capital, um, that you know the globalist elite are bringing in immigrants and to take white working class jobs. Like, this it's is not, a, just, so, it's so, not just an economic. Like, I think yeah. that there's a folk understanding that the conservative critique of immigrants is that they're coming to take your jobs. And like, frankly, what Donald Trump has done and what you know, and what Tucker Carlson is currently succeeding very well in the ratings by doing is talking about immigrants primarily as a threat to social fabric, which right. is a different so critique. I, I, w- I would put it the role of the economic argument in a sort of different okay. way here, right? Because this to me is a there are multiple dividing lines. One dividing line that I think is really of interest to National Review writers. Right. That, that you see in this discourse is should we portray economically struggling white people as victims of the policymaking elite? Right. And this is something conservative writers are clearly very interested in. And if you see this back and forth, there's like a real focus on this. Right. It's like it's they have strong feelings about it. To me, it's sort of not that interesting. Like, oh, I find it super interesting because it talks about like it's a I mean, I don't know. It's, I, it's have the, I have the everyone's a victim of their own it, story it, mantra. Yes, but like, it, it's yeah. interesting to me that that dialogue is happening. Right. But like also like all Americans are in part victims of circumstance and in part authors of their own destiny and like blah, blah, blah. Right. To me, an interesting dividing line is do you wield anti-elitist rhetoric to actually challenge the economic privileges of the privileged or is it a way of using the culture war as a substitute for an economic argument. And to me, that's what's going on with a lot of immigration stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That there are many Americans who do not like immigrants, right? And they find immigration to be threatening, primarily in a somewhat diffuse physical threat kind of sense. But in general, they, they are just negatively disposed to immigrants. Those people also care about their economic well-being. And one thing that you can do in politics is just sort of slot their predisposition to dislike immigrants as like, oh, also, that's my economic agenda, right? And another thing Tucker did later this week, he had this whole segment about how corporate diversity programs are a scam. And 
I sympathize with actually what he's saying there. Like, I do not think that corporate diversity programs are scoring, like, big wins for racial and social justice. At the same time, this is another way of Tucker— if all corporate diversity programs went away and low-skilled immigrants were deported from the country, rich CEOs would not, like, be the victims of those policies, right? These are ways of making anti-elite arguments and kind of, like, sticking it to the man that don't actually stick it to the man. And I always find that to be the most, like, upsetting aspect of this kind of conservative populism is that you're like getting people all spun up about how like, yeah, we're going to take down those elites. But like you're not taking down the elites. Like when you deport undocumented immigrants, like it is true that the people who employ the undocumented immigrants as groundskeepers are a little bit worse off for having had their groundskeeper deported. But, like, it's really the groundskeeper who's lost out there, right? Like, if you want to stick it to the guy who's hiring the groundskeeper, you can raise his fucking taxes, and it's not that hard. And Carlson, throughout this uh, debate, he veers on both sides of those lines. Like, right. I don't want to say that, like, one is the real Tucker and one is is the fake Tucker. I think it is more—Connor uh, Friedersdorf had a good piece in The Atlantic sort of making the case that Carlson is a charlatan, uh, focusing on his very questionable use of some marijuana statistics. Yeah, he t- in this monologue, he talks a lot about how, like, the elites are pushing marijuana legalization on our, our poor, witless youth. Um, like, this is the like big mention- thing. Like, like they're sitting John around ba- at the Chamber of Commerce being like, we're going to get them all hooked on the wacky weed. Like, and it's just not true. No. <laughs> that being said, I think it is more interesting to take the generous interpretation of Carlson here and at least like as if this is serious because a a, a piece of macro context here, right, that I've written about before that we saw really clearly in uh, Larry Bartels' research and from some other people is that if you look at rank and file partisanship in the United States, Republicans are unified around cultural conservatism and divided on economic policy issues between there's conservatives and moderates on economics, but they're all conservative on culture-type topics. And with Democrats, it's the opposite. Like, Democrats are all moderate to left on economics and have a wide range of views on culture war issues, which sometimes surprises people. But it's like, think about, like, old black church ladies, right? And, like, versus, like, young hipsters, right? Like, very different opinions on, on certain kinds of culture topics. But then at the elite level, it's the opposite, right? And that, like, the right coalition includes most of institutional libertarianism, right? And the Democratic Party includes lots of corporate lobbyists on K Street, right? And the the alignment is completely different. And the Carlson proposition is like maybe there should be somebody in politics, in like elite politics, who speaks up for the large number of Americans who are loyal Republican Party voters and cultural conservatives who have moderate views on economic policy. And I think it is true. Like there are a lot of people who have that opinion and somebody should speak up for them in politics. Like it's not me and I don't even know if it's really Tucker, but like it should be somebody. Well, so this is why, you know, what I was saying, what I was trying to say about um, like thinking about who Tucker is as a figure is important to this because I don't think it's like a question of should we take this seriously or should we not take it seriously? We should look at how he's communicating and to whom he's communicating, right? Like Tucker Carlson has never been a politi- a politician. He has never 
been a force for a particular ideology within the conservative movement. He's been a media figure tapping into various media markets. He started as a kind of interesting, somewhat heterodox, gonzo type journalist. Um, I'm going to drop just because it's I I love this piece and I'm going to foist it on as many people as possible. Um, the trip he took with Al Sharpton and a bunch of other like black leaders to slave castles yes. for GQ, I think, back in the early 2000s. It's a very, it is a piece that I promise you, if you did not know it was Tucker Carlson, you would find, you know, very like interesting and kind of fun. And the yeah. fact that it's Tucker Carlson makes it just a total, you know, galaxy brain exploding thing. Um, But, you know, he evolved from that to a, with the Daily Caller, you know, tapping into a desire for a snarkier, more populist take on D.C. conservative politics. And from there to his Fox News persona as like the person on Donald Trump's favorite television network who is most closely hewing to the problems that Donald Trump identifies as the problems with America. Right. And in an interesting way, I think that Carlson, you know, I've argued many times that Trumpism does not really exist because there was a lot of people projecting onto Donald Trump what they wanted and Donald Trump responding with like healthcare for everybody and we're going to bomb the shit out of these people. And you're like, oh, that definitely hews to what I would like to hear. But I do think that in the sense that... um, you know, I had a conversation with someone this week talking about how the Tea Party at the very, very beginning what had this kind of anti-elite attitude before it got kind of – before astroturfing and a lot of other people got involved, um, that he, that version of Trumpism, that version of kind of this anti-elites that – you know, I'm going to use the term globalist because it's the word they would use, even though I do not like it. Um, I, this idea that the government could be doing something more, but for people who look hopefully more like Donald Trump in a way. He has, I think, been the best conduit of yeah, Trumpism because yes, I think he, that that's he's something. An expert, right. Like, and this is and I think that this is why, you know, when we're talking about Rod Dreher saying Tucker Carlson should run for president, like that vibe has been flowing through this conversation, like the idea that Tucker is now not only stepping into a different role than he's previously held, but that he is particularly well equipped to address the concerns of this block of people who conservative elites understand to be part of a very important part of their coalition. And also, and I think that this conversation has kind of revealed a certain amount of guilt and ambivalence among conservative elites about whether they've been doing enough for the people who are such loyal foot soldiers to them. So, like, right. I think it would be really irresponsible to pretend that Carlson is mostly an anti-too-big-to-fail populist. He has the platform that he has because he is on a daily basis reassuring people that their real problems are brown people. But... He's using he's like he's now communicating two different messages to two different audiences. He's communicating to white working class voters that their real problem isn't the elites. It's the brown people or like the brown people in conjunction with the elites in a way that's going to be worse for the brown people. And he's now communicating this like occasional monologue upward message to everyone else that they need to be doing something else to take care of the white working class. Well, Which is what makes the whole, like, if we don't do something, it's going to turn into socialism thing so interesting. It's like, nobody is working harder to make sure that the white working class does not turn to socialism than Tucker Carlson. Well, okay, but so I think it's worth... I can't believe I've become the Tucker Carlson apologist here, but I, I, 
I think it's worth delving into just like the good faith read of what he's saying. Right. I, I, I actually think in the course of all this, I think it was uh, Michael Brandon Doherty, who actually takes, I was complaining about a few weeks ago, who actually put forward like the clearest, most sensible version of this this viewpoint. And the, the sort of Carlson right populist viewpoint, um, he, he did some, some very good kind of articles on this. And one thing that I noticed looking at it from afar is that the populists have kind of two different things in the water, one of which I think feels more intellectually compelling to them, but the other of which there's better evidence for, right? And so one version of the criticism is that the free market is actually causing bad cultural outcomes, right? right. That seems to be something that they are comfortable saying because I think intellectually speaking – Conservatives feel like they need permission to espouse an anti-market viewpoint on, on some kind of economic topic. And so one good reason that you might be allowed to do that would be that an unrestrained market is bad for family values, right? And so like back in the day when we used to argue about pornography, I think uh, like yes. that was a clear example. Right. Like you could be an ardent capitalist – but still think that regulation of pornography was good, not because you espouse some kind of odd left-wing economic doctrine, but just because it was, like, bad for morals. So if it turns out that, like, low wages for working-class men causes single motherhood or something, then that gives you permission to say, okay, they need help. Um, I think David French and, and some other people who've pushed back on this, I mean, fairly solid on the fact that, like, the, the actual – evidence for that contention is not that strong. The causation doesn't line up really well. It's true that a, a number of communities were really devastated by the opening of trade to China, but a number of other geographic communities in America weren't and even benefited. But you see very similar social right. trends in working class life, whether you're talking about, you know, Ohio or, or Arizona. A, a different contention that I think is more sensible, but perhaps a little less like something you could say at the Edmund Burke Society is just that, like, as a political movement, we have an obligation to make a good faith effort to advance the interests of our constituents. And just that, like, if the base of our party is white working class voters, and if it would be good for white working class voters to have, I don't know what, like an EITC or a Medicaid or a, whatever it is that would be good, we should do the thing that would be good, right? right? And this is very alien to the conservative movement because what what I am offering is a classic party politics view, right? That like if you are Tammany Hall and your constituents are Irish immigrants, then you got to walk around the street ask Irish immigrants what they want, and to an extent, you have to do it, right? right? Like, not necessarily everything they want, because you have other constituents, so you need to win the election, but it's like, your job as a political party is to be a broker of the interests of your party members. The whole point of the conservative movement was to, like, not be that, right? Was to have an ideological movement that would win in the Republican Party and turn the Republican Party into an ideological vehicle, rather than this kind of catch-all party for wasps. But I think the most sensible version of the conservative populist view is just that, like, that was a mistake, that, like, real-world politics is not a great place for a clash of pure ideologies and that you need, like, 
party politics and that party politics means if like West Virginia is our number one state and West Virginia is being crippled by an opioid epidemic, then we've got to go get some money to help them out with their opioid problem. Right. right? Just like just because you do. Right. Not because like you can derive from first principles that the opioid epidemic is a worthy cause for government inter- intervention, but because like there's a representational obligation. And I think you see like the most interesting people in Republican Party politics to me, uh, the most interesting person in Republican Party politics to me is Lisa Murkowski, precisely because that's what she has done. She has like not become a like toast of the town moderate, but she's like out there hustling for Alaska. And like it's not what I would want to do, like, let's just, like, kill all the wildlife or whatever. But it's very authentic representational work well, rather than first principles like, work. the same thing Texas Republicans who have been fighting really assiduously for, like, Harvey relief funding, yeah. right? Like, natural disasters and this, like, you know, put a pin in this and come back to it in 10 or 20 years as we continue to see the, like, effects of global climate change. Um Natural disasters have been something where Republicans have been have not had a problem at all. Generally, understanding that the like understanding a representational obligation to their yes. constituents. Although the Texas GOP has been the the wall has really put tension on this, right? I mean, not to get dragged into that, but like uh, you, you you see a divide yeah. between like Will Hurd actually there on the border and like. Ted Cruz looking to his future in national Republican politics, like having a sort of sort of different different takes on this. But I do think the ideological aspect of right. this is interesting because it, it, circle, it is. because it circles back to race. It does. And but so, you know, before we kind of get to the race conversation, which is something you know I talked about with Carlson, um, I think it's interesting because it also goes to something. One of the concerns, and I think that you're seeing this um, in these conversations that conservatives are having with one another is that if your ideology is popular but it doesn't work for the people who allegedly are a part of it and i think that that was that's one of the things that a lot of people were saying with trump is that like he's not a conservative he's saying all these unconservative things but he's very popular with people who think of themselves as being conservative and i think that that is a moment that you start seeing you know that carlson would probably argue that that's where this is coming from that while the elites of the Republican Party that he rails against in this monologue, talking about how if you care about America, you ought to oppose the exploitation of Americans, whether it's happening in the inner city or on Wall Street. He is talking about this idea that, like, ideologically, market capitalism, it's such an integral part of what conservatives think about themselves, except that for the people who Carlson is talking to or in this monologue somewhat talking about it may not be working. But something that he kept te- you know, kept saying is our society should be largely based around helping normal people. Yes. And he kept using the term in this monologue, normal people. And, you know, that's something he's said things like, you know, in a previous show that he did a couple of months ago, he talked about, you know, you know, all these elites, they live in these beautiful neighborhoods and where nothing has changed since 1960. And it goes with, um, you know, this is not something that Carlson said, but something that other people have, you know, kind of within this conservative populist movement is that there is this time where white working class people, you know, they were, you know, union membership was high, but everyone got along and it was like 1953 and things were great. And you didn't have to go to college to be able to have like a really 
really great job. And, you know, the unspoken thing there is that, you know, there was a lot going on in 1953 and the rights of African-Americans to join unions or have well-paying jobs that with those same sorts of societal guarantees, not saying that African-Americans in 1953 did not have well-paying jobs sometimes, but they did not have the societal guarantees that went with it. You know, they did not have access to the GI Bill. They did not have access to kind of the same housing. Google redlining, just learn about it. Um, but this right, I- which of course, which which means that like the purpose of a well-paying job is supposed to be to build household wealth. Right. And if you are not in a household or a neighborhood that, where like your property values are going to appreciate and you don't have access to union guarantees that are going to give you a robust pension package, like the kind of the the difference between salary and wealth that has become relevant to con- conversations now about racial inequality when we're talking about kind of going back to that world, there are lots of other intervening organizations and institutions that you would need to build back up. Exactly. The discussions of this monologue and the discussions of this type of populism and the race question within it, I think, was best espoused ironically by uh, Heather McDonald, um, who didn't write on the monologue but wrote something else about um, black culture and violence, and basically making the you know if you really want to do you really want to save black lives, you have to do something about inner city culture. Which one, inner city doesn't mean anything anymore. But two, that is the exact same argument that conservatives have been making for 40 years about African-Americans. And I think, you know, Adam Server, who writes for The Atlantic, he wrote, you know, it comes down to when black people have problems, it's personal responsibility. But when white people have the same problems, the system is messed up. But this was uh, one of the more interesting parts of your interview with Carlson. I feel that a lot of the content of Tucker Carlson's television program has been very problematic on the racial front. But bracketing that, when right. you put this to him squarely, yes, he yeah. said he had changed his mind about yes. it. Yes, and it was interesting because he talked a lot. Um, we had a long conversation about the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C., um, because he actually went in the olden days. He wrote for City Journal, and he wrote about black businesses in Shaw that were extremely successful during segregation. But then he talked about how he started, you know. Two-thirds of this podcast lives there. It, so. it does. Um, he talked about how, you know, the, he grew up in D.C. in the 80s and the only, you know, it was basically like upper class white people and then lower class black people. But then he was going back and forth to rural Maine. And in rural Maine, he said he, he told me, you know, I started seeing the same kinds of like, quote unquote, cultural problems in rural Maine that, you know, I was seeing in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. And, you know, he was saying, you know, wait a second, maybe when the jobs go away, the culture changes. And the reason I didn't think of it before was I was so blinded by this libertarian economic propaganda. And, you know, he told me, you know, with black poverty, it's pretty easy when you've got 12 percent of the population going through something to feel like, well, there must be something wrong with the culture. Which is a tricky, actually tricky thing to say because it's in part true. But what you're missing and what I missed and what I think a lot of people missed was that the economic system you're living under affects your culture. And that was that's what he told me. Yes. And I thought, uh, you know, it was such an interesting thing because it really does, you know, 
the conversations we have about poverty have been so racialized, especially among conservatives. I think that we've talked about this with Trump before, that like part of the Trump pitch to many Trumpists was basically like a welfare state for white people. And that white poverty gets like farm aid in, in the 1980s, whereas black poverty is pathologized as being like, well, you know, if you stopped listening to rap music or studied more, maybe these things wouldn't be happening to you. And I thought it was interesting that Carlson basically is like, well, you know, it turns out I was kind of I was wrong on this, that maybe poverty is really hard on people and it's hard on families and it's hard on children. And that, you know, whether or not you're in Baltimore or in rural Maine, it happens in kind of the same way. I think that, like, it's important to recognize that this is not a oh, I was wrong about race and I was wrong about the role of cultural pathology. It's it's an argument about I was wrong about black America. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- like this is, you know, it's not like Tucker Carlson is not out there saying these people are different from us and don't share our values and that's a problem. He's saying that every day. He's just saying it about people coming in from outside of the U.S. to the U.S. Right. And sure. the, there's this, I, I think that... As much as Donald Trump was out there talking about, like, the white welfare state, there was also this idea that the Trump campaign was very high on that, like, you know, we've talked about we talked about a bunch in our discussion of Kanye West that, like, there is a an opportunity here for the Republican Party and conservatism to bring in black Americans on the idea that they, too, have been left behind and that the same problems that are aff- right. affecting the white working class are also affecting so, them. But so, like— I. I do think on the, on the big ideas level, right, right. as opposed to cynical politics level, right? Like what, what you basically have here is like this was an old – like this was William Julius Wilson's when work disappears thesis, right? There came to be in the course of the 70s and 80s this big panic about the black family. And one thesis was that black culture in was was amiss. Right. And that people were not behaving the correct way. Right. And that we were spending too much time listening to the temptations and not enough time, I don't know, getting married. Well yeah, not enough married not enough stable married households and emphasis cultural emphasis on educational attainment. Hmm. And so William Julius Wilson uh, very important sociologist, he comes up with a sort of base superstructure inversion in which he says, like, yes, it is true that these patterns of cultural behavior are bad, but that the reason that these patterns have arisen is that um, economic activity moved out of central city industrial areas and then white people followed job opportunities into the suburbs, but housing discrimination prevented black people from following the jobs. So they inhibited this kind of liminal jobless space, which created a lack of marriageable men and blah, 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 blah. And so Carlson is now espousing the old when work disappears thesis and is saying now we see in post-industrial communities that this is also true. And I have been on the opposite intellectual journey from Tucker Carlson with regard to this because if you pay attention to what Wilson was saying, right, like there was a specific racial element to the explanation. Right. Which was that because of housing discrimination, inner city African-Americans could not follow 
the economic opportunities out into the suburbs. And that was why they were like trapped in this situation. And whatever you may think of happening in the Rust Belt, that is not occurring. Right. Like there is not some network of redlining that makes it impossible to go to Houston. Right. Um, No, there is. I have written extensively about restrictions on housing supplies in big coastal cities. But there are like big growing urban areas in the United States. And something that is striking to me, because we, we get to see right now that a sort of similar deindustrializing issue occurs in white communities is like, what difference does it make, right, when people are able to move? What difference does it make if actually the local economy is booming, as it has been in North Dakota and Wyoming, which they have natural resources, right? And it makes a big difference to people's material standards of living. Right. So like people in Wyoming, white working class people in Wyoming have a lot more money than white working class people in dying Maine mill towns. Right. But it has not changed the course of family life. Right. Like it, it's just not true that in North Dakota, white working class people are exhibiting the same kind of family structure that college graduates have in coastal yes. cities. White working class people in North Dakota look a lot like white working class people in Maine, with the difference being they have nicer cars and more like they have more money. Right. Which which is good. Right. Like if you if you care about people's well-being, like it makes a real difference whether you're in grinding poverty or doing well in life. But I think we have come to see as it has come into the white world that like the cultural the, the realm of cultural values has a certain like autonomous nature to it right and and Janet Yellen and George Akerlof had this old paper in the in the mid 90s where they say and, you know they're economists rather than sociologists so like they don't talk to anyone about like why they think things are happening they do a lot of time series econometrics and what they say is well, when abortion became legal and birth control became widely accepted, you stopped having shotgun marriages, right? That we had a flip so that it was a woman's choice whether to carry a pregnancy to term, but also it was a woman's responsibility. And that this, they say, is what came up with it. Their statistical work, you know, it seems pretty good to me, but also like, I don't know. Either way, it just like it now really seems to me that it's like people come up with ideas about gender roles and family life, like on just a separate track and people should not be poor and like we should help them out because like we can and it makes people better off. But I think this idea that you're going to like re-engineer 1950s social values, I mean, it's not clear that you would want to, but also like you just can't. Right. Because I think that, you know, something um, Carlson's monologue goes into a great deal and then he spent many days of coverage on this is the idea. You know, and when we talked about this, this idea that like marriage, the institution of marriage is being kept away from white working class Americans be- by elites because elites are getting married, but white working class people are not yes. getting married at the same rates. And there's this entire idea. Um, I can't I don't know the person who originally devises, but there's an idea on the right. And they, you know, with a bunch of sociological research that basically if you get married, then have kids that will get more or less guarantee like your ability yes, it's to the, the, the cornerstone versus capstone. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so I think that, you know. It's interesting because this idea that government intervention of some kind and Carlson, he was like, I don't really have any ideas besides changing the tax code because then we had a long conversation about the fact that, you know, it's 
the tax code is way more beneficial to you if you are a single person who goes into like finance than if you are a poorer person who wants to get married and um, do yeah. your taxes on that basis. But you know that the idea that there should be some means of ensuring or how making it easier for white working class people to get married, but that elites don't want them to. I'm glad that we're here because I, I think like this is a great opportunity to talk about the role that the idea of virtue has played Ooh, in this yeah. whole debate. Um, because like it's important to note that the conversation around the Carlson monologue has kind of gone on. It's it's not that it's been on two different tracks. Like everyone's having both of these arguments simultaneously, but they're different arguments. Right. One scope is like what is a policy agenda that would help these people, and the other and and is that a good idea? And the other one is. What do we as elites or like slash as fellow citizens tell people who are being left behind, who are disenfranchised? Like what message do we send them? How do we encourage them to make sense of their lives? Like do we encourage them to understand that it is not their fault that they are the victims of, you know, either elite malice or neglect? Or do we encourage them to focus on their own responsibility and try to, you know, control the things that they can control? Um, And in that respect, like, you know, there is a lot of the people who are defending Tucker Carlson are saying we have reached the limits of the conservative ethos of, you know, personal responsibility. Like Michael Brennan Doherty's piece on this laid it out explicitly, like he asked the other interlocutors in the debate, are there any political circumstances under which you think the advice you would give to an individual would not be just suck it up. Right. And like, yeah, there's that's a decent, you know, like he pointed out, like you could tell unjustly held political prisoners that they should control the things that are in their control. Like there definitely is in theory going to be a limiting point there. But there's also this very immediate like, what do you tell this particular group of people right now? And one of the points that's been raised by by Tucker's critics has been like, People who are insufficiently virtuous, like if we're social conservatives, we don't just believe that marriage is good because it helps material well-being. We believe that marriage is good, that like, you know, virtue precedes prosperity is the way that like Brendan Doherty characterized Ben Shapiro's position on this. And like if you think about it that way, that's not a conservative responsibility responsibility politics. That's the prosperity gospel. That's like the way in which American Christianity has appealed to a lot of these very same people by telling them that the purpose purpose of that, like, if you are a good person, the good things on this earth will come to you. And that's been very, very appealing for a lot of people as a way to, like, make sense of their relationship with the divine. But it also does lead to a certain amount of victim blaming if you don't get it, right? right? Like, if the purpose of having a relationship with Jesus is that you will reap the good things in life and you're not reaping the good things in life, doesn't that mean that you're an insufficiently virtuous person? And it's fascinating because, like, this hasn't actually been a conversation about religion. Like, even though it's a conversation about social conservatism and social conservatism over the last half century or so has become very tied with a strain of Christian evangelical politics— People aren't really talking about religion and Christianity here. And the reason that that strikes me as so interesting is that, like, in theory, we're talking about marriage and family life. And that's supposed to be the thing that evangelicals have purchased on within the conservative movement. Like, the rise of political evangelicalism is supposed to be to preserve family life against the evils of abortion and out-of-wedlock children and, you know, same-sex marriage and all of that. It is clear that the way in which... 
like religious figures have decided to play their hand within the conservative movement has isn't giving them the currency to really weigh in on a debate like this. That, like, right. Because there they, are a they lot basic, of people, there's been a lot, you know, I think Carlson mentions this a little bit, is that like the same social conservatives who rail against kind of the destruction of the family are also saying like it's really great that we have the free market and that the free market is in some way like not like it's bestowed to us by God, but by kind of, you know, he talks about how market capitalism has become a religion of sorts among conservatives and even mentions that, you know, for social conservatives, like who could be kind of taking the same stances and talking about how the free market can be harmful to cultural values. They're not saying that. But right. So, just so that, what we're right? having it's... now is like a conversation about virtue, about, you know, about social conservatism, about responsibility to others that is a post-religious social conservative. Which is, I think that that is something that's come up a great deal, is this idea that, you know, we, you know, and this is something conservatives talk about a lot right now, is that in a post-religious context, we attempt to fill the whole left by religion with something. And the argument among some is that this is that something. And that Ben Shapiro's argument is that, in a sense, Tucker Carlson is attempting to fill the whole left by a lack of virtue with government or with you know some sort of interventionist model um, and you know it's interesting and also for the record the prosperity gospel is very unbiblical okay but so here's where I have an idea that I think has it's a little unfashionable, but I, but I think it's correct, right? Which is that many people on the left want to say that reactionary cultural politics are caused by economic decline. Mm-hmm. And Tucker Carlson seems to be offering the view that um, social dissolution is caused by excessive free marketiness. But I think that the causal arrow here is that reactionary cultural politics cause economic Decline. Whoa! Hot that take. in that in particular, what you have is that like the world changes as it does. That there is a certain kind of backward-looking gender politics that discourage that encourages anti-intellectualism. It discourages men in particular from going into service-type occupations that they see as as subservient to other people, discourages them from engaging in helping-type work. It discourages women from thinking of themselves as potential breadwinners, and it creates these kind of dysfunctional, backward-looking communities, right? And that what was understood... uh, at the time when it was exhibiting in black communities, to an extent, conservatives could see this, but they had it being that like, aha, people are afraid of acting white, and so they're not investing in education. But if you actually look at what's happened in African-American educational attainment over the past generation, like it has soared, right? right? Because like at the end of the day, I think the hypothesis that if it were the case— that black people were like opposed to obtaining schooling and all just thought they could be rap stars or basketball players. Like that really would have been terrible. It just wasn't true. You know what I mean? Like it was it was kind of a slander. And that like actually what you have seen is that African-American educational attainment has grown a lot, that there is a growing African-American middle class, that you have more successful African-American politicians. And that like the problem, though, is that there's also a lot of racial discrimination in America, which makes it difficult to fully cash in on those 
advantages, right? But now you have conservative politics is soaked through with exactly what they used to claim was pathological about African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, like, education is bad, right? That, like, nerds are terrible. That, like, college professors are brainwashing you. That, like, anything that involves, like, a potentially lucrative career is excessively girly. And that, like, everybody should work in the steel factory, right? And that, like, this and, idea like, of real Americans or that, like, yes, that and it is, even that going it back is to that idea of that normal is, Americans. That is cultural betrayal and that if you can't, like, make it in the steel factory, you're entitled to just, like, give up somehow, right? And, like, it doesn't make sense. And you can see there, because of natural resource endowments, it sometimes does come to be the case that, like, you can make a good living in traditional blue-collar type occupations, and you can look at the places where that's happened, and, like, it's it's great. Like, people there, like, they're doing well, they have money, but it doesn't change the politics or the culture, and it makes you wonder. It's like, well, okay, when the oil patch, when, when the Eagle Ford runs out of oil, like, how is that going to be different from West Virginia where the coal industry has declined, right? Like, they are not using that resource endowment to build a, like, thriving modern society in which people can have, like, healthy marriages that are not reliant on incredible gender imbalance, right? That, like, in liberal coastal America, people have, like, worked through to an extent the sexual revolution and, like, can have partnerships that are both stable but also more egalitarian than traditional ones, whereas you have places where there's just, like, endless clash and it's not— Working out. And and I see sometimes conservatives saying that it's like hypocritical for college educated liberals to like not be social conservatives when in fact we have high marriage rates. But like it's the opposite. It's like we're doing fine. And like their ideas are bad. And like that's why it doesn't work. And like the communities where their thinking has been most influential are completely dysfunctional. And they're kind of like spinning their wheels around this, right? And you guys were talking about religion. And to me, like, the key shark-jumping moment here was when, um, not now, but, like, 15, 20 years ago, they went, like, all in on anti-gay stuff as the essence of Christian morality, right? And there is such a huge difference when you think about religion between asking people to exercise restraint vis-a-vis urges that they might actually feel Right. To like be faithful to your spouse. Right. Versus (laughs) just like being really proud of yourself for not being gay. Right. Like that's really dumb. Like that's not like a real self-discipline or anything. Right. It's just like being an asshole to a relatively small minority of the population. Especially because it seemed to just let, you know, if if your understanding is that homosexuality is a sin and it's something that you should be focused on, you know, adultery is also a sin. And it's interesting how this idea that that laser focus, and I think that that's something I think a lot of people have talked about more recently as kind of evangelicals um, are trying to figure out like how to reframe being an evangelical in 2019. And it's interesting because, you know, something I notice a lot is that the same people who are making like really strident anti-marriage equality arguments in, like 2014 have all suddenly decided they're libertarian on the issue now. It's like liberal idea about how to strengthen marriage was yeah. dads should 
do more of the childcare. Right. And the conservative idea was, well, if we discriminate against gay people, it'll just all work out fine. Well, but especially like, this, idea, that this really idea that, like, if gay people can get married, well, then, like, you, it'll, like— I don't know. Wait, we're it'll all fucking turtles the next moment. Like, it was crazy. <laughs> it'll water down marriage because, you know, if we just let anyone do it, well, sure. then it'll be bad. But it, it's interesting also because this entire concept of virtue is very much – it requires everyone to all be in agreement about what virtues are. And I think that when we see, you know, prominent evangelicals who basically are like, there is nothing Trump could do that would make us turn our backs on him, the same prominent evangelicals who had different views on, say, infidelity eh, like 20 years ago, about roughly to the year, you know, I think that – when we don't have the common language to talk about the virtues that we think are important, then it's really hard to have a conversation about the idea of virtue. Right. No, this is and, and I think that it is not the first indication we have that the politicization of evangelicalism in the like very literal, like becoming the Trump base first and foremost sense has intellectually impoverished conversations that there should be a religious component to. Like, it's fascinating that the same people who are having this conversation about Tucker Carlson now are the people who are very intrigued by Jordan Peterson, because what Jordan Peterson has become popular among, you know, a generation of young, like a, a large swath of young men for saying is that there is a that there is a virtue to personal responsibility that you can't like that you actually do need to step up and declare agency in your own life and for whatever reason intellectually appealing to the same conservatives who are now finding what Tucker Carlson is saying intellectually appealing not because they like are saying are, are kind of advocating for the same agenda, but because both of them are trying to find languages to talk about how to make sense of your relationship to, like, your place in the world and your relationship to others, which are traditionally religious questions in a world where religious leaders don't appear to be interested in giving those, like, answers to their flock, right? Right. There's a, the extent to which religion and conservatism are intertwined is so totally electoral and so totally Trump focused right now that like we're somehow having a conversation about how do you help the poor that isn't talking about the role of church charity, which is like supposed to be the thing that conservatives really love as an alternative to the welfare state. Like we're talking about, you know, marriage and stability in a way that isn't just about go to church, LOL. Right. It is, I you know, I don't know how we, I, I think you're totally right that the problem with virtue conversations is that you need a shared definition of virtue. And we're, try, we're currently seeing social conservatives try to work through that, having realized that that has been lost, not only within America as a whole, but even within the conservative But movement. I think Indeed. even more than that, I think part of the subtext of the backlash to political correctness is that there's a growing movement on the right, and this is in in real tension, I think, to sort of redefine vice as virtue. Right. That being a god-awful person or just saying fuck your feelings is in in a way a virtuous manner, which actually it turns into – I think we've had this conversation on another podcast. But when you posit your movement – as being based on being in opposition to another movement or whatever you've invented as this movement. That gets really complicated because then you start being like, well, you know, I think uh, there's 
a uh, podcast host who was saying really nice things about Brazil's new president. Sure. And then people pointing out that, like, Brazil's new president is not a tip-top member of the human race. Well, but he hates social justice warriors, so there's that. But I mean, and I just mean more specifically, right? right. Like, there has been, over the course of my lifetime— an ongoing change in the political valence of raunchy pop culture. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Which was once seen as unchristian and therefore, like, liberals could be its defenders. Like, we're just all having fun out here. You know, there's something about Mary. Ha, ha, ha. And is now increasingly seen as unfeminist. Yes. And conservatives are increasingly proud to be the, like, we like the blue comedy, you know, kind of stuff like that. And I have sort of mixed feelings about this, like, qua pop culture. But especially given the role that personal virtue plays in conservative thinking about economic problems, it's like a real problem for them to be simultaneously aligning themselves as the, like, we're the anything goes people. We're the people who will just laugh at your stand-up set no matter what it says yeah. kind of thing. Like, I, I get the appeal of that sort of as a as a marketing thing and, like, as – frankly, like a white man who is always like asked in the new realignment to be like, like be smaller, like be, be more constrained in what you do. But at the same time, it's like there is now a left concept of virtuous behavior that is fairly yes. clear and people understand what it is. And some people don't like it, but like it's coherent and like it makes sense. And there is ongoing dialogue around its margins, whereas conservatives have their old idea, but they've increasingly set it aside in favor of like, no, we're actually the the libertines, right? Like we're yeah. literally going to make Donald Trump the political leader of our movement. And they've decided that they, you know, there's this whole thing about how like conservatism is the new punk rock because like they're just standing in opposition and they're having a lot of fun over here. And it, it is really interesting to see this kind of like, ah, like our opposition to the left is our ideology, which, you know, that's not good. Because it's really so, hard because like you can't be like, okay, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, keep your head down, just work harder. But like also, oh, and like marriage, family, that's yeah. the solution to everything. But like also anything goes like right. lol, ha ha ha. <laughs> why are you being such a prude? It's like, no, you're the prudes, right? Like, Or at any rate, it's like prudishness plays a central role in conservative thinking about how society should work. But they have also completely abandoned any standards of behavior. So, which brings me back to like Tucker Carlson's own career trajectory and his role in all this, because, of course, like. Tucker Carlson founded the Daily Caller, which is which is absolutely <laughs> on the side of libertinism in this debate. Like they made it very clear from the start that the way they were going to make money was because they were going to have like, you know, a mix of what was originally like supposed to be more serious policy stuff, which they then moved away from and like snarky own the libs posts with slideshows of hot women. Yep. Like the slideshows of hot women thing was very central to the business model the whole time. And like they've kept also the snarky. Being, yeah, also not really doing a lot of background checks on who they hire. Right. There's yeah. That no, too. Yeah. Like they've they've moved away from the kind of serious ballast stuff. There's still a lot of snarky own the libs and there's still the slideshows of hot women. And 
for Tucker Carlson, who, again, like hasn't been it's not that he's been advocating for the conservative movement to become more libertine. He's just been looking at where the market is. And for him to now be thinking to now be kind of espousing a new earnestness and like for all that his Fox show is super doubling down on like the cultural threat of immigrants, he doesn't have quite the obsession with bringing people on who have, you know, to like own the libs like there is some there is own the libs content, but the kind of like free speech warriorism stuff has not really been as appealing to him as it has to some of his his colleagues at Fox. And. So for him to now be kind of in the role of this like new earnestness is interesting to me because he's a savvy enough marketer that he appears to have identified this as a like a niche in the market that needs to be filled. And the problem is that it's much harder to build a code of ethics from scratch than it is to critique and dismantle what's already there. And with that... If you want to critique and dismantle what's on our podcast, send us an email, join the Facebook group, you know, complain. Uh, lines are always open. Um, and uh, we are going to say thanks to Jeffrey Geld, our new producer here, doing great work. And uh, The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.